I think I've stumbled upon here of the like multi-side hustle, intermittent, high value, dollar per hour system. Welcome to Thriving the Future podcast, where we're finding positive solutions to thrive in the tough times ahead. Welcome back to Thriving the Future. In this episode, I talk with Jewel Smith, the editor of the Homestead Journal, on how to make money on your own terms. So what if you could work less than 40 hours a week? What if you could charge double what everyone else is charging, work less and still thrive? Let's find out. You're over in Idaho. How did you end up in Idaho and what kind of homesteading setup do you have over there? I was born in Minneapolis. I moved to Alaska because when I was 19, I think I was, um, I went to Alaska because, you know, adventure and I always knew I wanted to homestead and Alaska just seemed, you know, the last great frontier. Let's do it. And I met my wife up there. We lived there for five years. It was really nice up there. Um, the culture was awesome and the homesteading potential was great. Really? The yeah. only thing that we didn't like was the climate is just so brutal and the darkness, like we lived in the interior near Fairbanks sure. mm-hmm. and just the near 24 hours of darkness in the winter is just so brutal. And the 40, 50 below, sometimes even colder, you know, I think 58 below was the coldest that I ever saw, but, um, that's just extreme, you know, and for a single guy, it was really fun. And even as like a freshly married couple, that was fun. But once, you know, we were planning on having kids and stuff and we didn't really want to raise them in that just extreme environment where it would be harder on top of the difficulties of everyday life and homesteading and stuff. So, um, my wife was in school at the time up there. This is actually uh, a fun little side note. I don't know if this is still true of Alaska, but this might interest the listeners. Um, My wife was getting into nursing school at the time. And back then nursing was uh, still a really good job. Now it's kind of not as great of a job since COVID, Mm -hmm. but back then it was a great one. And all the nursing schools were completely backlogged and, you know, there was wait lists for like years because they can only take so many students because they need to do practicums in the hospital. And there's only, you know, so many doctors who are willing to do it or other nurses and stuff like that. So, um, she found that in Alaska, there was like no wait list, nothing. She got right in, she got accepted. And I had a similar experience where, um, going to school up there, I did not graduate high school with like a full ride scholarship or anything like that, but I actually made money off going to school, partly because I went in Alaska where pretty much when I drove over the border, people were just like handing job applications out at the time, the economy was really good. And, um, the scholarships, like you could get a scholarship for anything. I remember, I, I don't recommend going to college to people, but if you are going to go to college, definitely don't pay for it. Mm-hmm. Just find scholarships that are really obscure 
and be the only person to apply for them. Wow. That's like, that's a super secret tip. My uncle did this um, for medical school and he got his entire medical school paid for. He found the scholarship two weeks before he left for medical school mm-hmm. and he wasn't sure how he was going to pay for it. Then he found the scholarship and I used his same strategy. So what he did was he just looked around for super obscure scholarships. Like there was one for an adult child of a Korean war veteran. You could get a full ride scholarship to medical school wow. just for being an adult child of a Korean war veteran. And my grandpa was in the Korean war mm-hmm. and my uncle was like, Hey, he filled it out. You know, a couple weeks later, they sent him the thing back. They're like, yep, you're the only person who applied. You get it. And, uh, that kind of inspired me. So I looked for these scholarships and I kind of designed my major around it. Like originally I was going to major in chemistry, but I wound up majoring in biochemistry because one of the scholarships was $6,000 a semester for people who wanted, who were majoring in biochemistry and wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I knew from talking to all of the other students that I was the only one who was planning on being a teacher. So I applied for the scholarship and I got it every semester. And, (laughs) you know, like just from being the only one who applied. And at the time, tuition was only $4,000 a semester there. So just off that scholarship alone, and there was other ones as well. This was just the biggest one Mm -hmm. um, that I got. I also got a couple thousand dollar ones here and there every semester. Um, But just off that alone, you can basically get paid to go to school if you're inclined to go to school, which, as I said, I don't recommend. But um, that's how I chose to do it in college. So sure. That was just a side note about Alaska and, you know, my wife's experience getting in there and looking for geographical area. I guess the large scale pattern would be looking for geographical areas that can minimize the energy barrier on thriving you know Mm -hmm. like you could go to downtown LA and have it be very difficult to thrive or you know potentially I guess some people really could thrive there but for me I know it would be really hard um or you can go to maybe somewhere that you wouldn't expect like Alaska and maybe they're depending on your objective, like in the case of nursing school, which was really hard to get into. Um, it might really play out. So anyways, we got married. Um, we had a kid and then we're like, okay, we got to get serious. We were just living in Anchorage at that time. Mm -hmm. And, um, we decided to move back to Minneapolis where I'm from because my family was still there. So we had some support and we decided that we were going to do whatever we needed to do to get some land as quickly as possible. So that meant living with my parents so that we didn't have to pay rent. Um, That wasn't a super pleasant experience as a relatively newly married couple. Um, I wouldn't recommend that going and living with someone's either person's family um just because of the you know the classic like in-law dynamics and you're trying to stick it out on your own and all that but 
it, we never would have well, we never would have made it if we would have done that <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we almost did it luckily we got out of there when we did um and so we moved back to Minneapolis and just basically our objective was to find the highest paying jobs that we could and mm -hmm. work full time, both of us, you know, not spend any money, just live as simply as possible, live with my parents, um, you know, like literally have nothing, just put all of that money. And the strategy we chose to employ was to save up enough money to buy some property in cash because then um, I know that there's a lot of like debt shenanigans that you can do and leveraging it and all that stuff. Sure. Um, but I, I'm just not, that's just not my style to do that. I don't know. I'm just like way more of a simpleton, I guess, when it comes to finance where I don't like to pay bills. I don't like to like owe anyone anything. Um, and that's just like a personal preference. So that's what we decided to do. And we worked for two and a half years, just nonstop. <clears throat> and then one of, a, one of uh, my wife's friends from nursing school um, lived in Idaho. And she was like, oh, okay, you guys need to come visit us. You would love it here. And we went out and visited her. And... Um, we did love it. It was just like Alaska in culture, but the climate was just instead of like zone zero, you know, it's like zone <laughs> six. Zero. Zone and, zero. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, like the perennials, the perennials that you can grow up there are so limited. There was like two types of trees. There was birch trees and black spruce. And like, that's it. Those were the trees, the only trees that were tough enough to grow up there. And yep. then some, you know, there's shrubs and stuff like willows and all that. But yeah, it's, it's no joke. Um, so anyways, we're, we're like zone six and uh, that's a lot, a lot nicer. Yeah. So that's how we wound up here. Um, we found five acres kind of outside of a decent sized town, 10,000 people. Um we're wow. about 15 minutes outside of town. That's awesome. So what kind of a uh, homesteading do you do over there on your five acres? Um, so we are. What, what's your specialty over there? My specialty, I would say, is natural building. That would be if I had to pick a forte of mine, it's definitely not gardening. I do enjoy gardening. Um, my wife does most of the gardening, I'd say maybe 80% of the gardening. Um, mm -hmm. I put in 100% of the gardens, but then she takes it from there. So that's kind of the dynamic where I install stuff and then she kind of like manages it. So, oh, okay. but my specialty or my passion for homesteading is really building things, um, whether that's structures or systems or just like anything like ponds you know um really well pretty much anything i just like creating things or little devices or machines you know 
mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. any of that related to homesteading. I I'm really a fan of that. And that's, that's kind of, I think, um, my dad was kind of like an inventor type guy. And I remember sure. as a kid, always being with him in his shop and he would be, you know, cooking up some crazy invention. He wasn't into homesteading, but in his own way with what he was into, he would invent stuff and just build things. So I think I kind of like inherited that from him. Cool. So you were saying in the article that uh, you also do some blacksmithing. Is that right? Yeah. Um, blacksmithing, woodworking, you know, I, I try to do it all so that basically anything, I guess one of my goals is in theory, I would like to be able to create anything that I might want. That's not to say that I will create anything that I might want. You know, I'm, this isn't coming from a mentality of like, I don't want to have to buy anything like, you know, if SHTF, like it's just me and I'll need to make everything. No, that's not, sure. <clears throat> that's not where I'm coming from. It's um, like, let's say I just like w- want a really cool, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Well, then I know in my mm-hmm. mind that I could make one if I'm so inclined. And then like, I'll have, it's more of like a style thing where you just have like a handmade unique version of whatever mundane item it is that people might not have, you know, seen before. So in your article, you were talking about all the side hustles and, and jobs you do. So you do some online teaching and then you do the handyman stuff, right? Yes. So online teaching is not a side hustle, actually. That is like a, Mm -hmm. you know, real job, so to speak. Um, But yeah, in the article, I was discussing kind of my like general financial strategy, which included, which included a real job, and then also side hustles. And I guess the handyman thing could be considered a side hustle. Um, even though it's kind of more like serious than that, I guess. Right. But it's, I guess it's the same kind of idea, but, um, then the other main side hustle that I really enjoy doing is crafting things for people, you know, custom orders, including blacksmithing or woodworking Mm -hmm. furniture, stuff like that. Um, and then another thing probably followed by that would be music either composing music or scoring things or performing. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that stood out to me in that, in the uh, article was when you said, do things to fulfill you without financial compensation, but then things that you may hate, you may have to do to reliably pay the bills. Yes. Yes. So this was huge. And this was um, one of my friends who is an artist told me this. And so Mm -hmm. I'm a musician. He's an artist. We were talking about, you know, the kind of like artsy personality type and how we deal with the world and all that stuff. And he mentioned um, one of the things that he's working on is although he's like a visual artist, he is working on doing CAD designs for these people who are doing 3d carvings of things. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you can obviously see like the overlap between being an artist and doing that. 
Um, but it's not necessarily like the first thing that comes to mind when you think of doing art. It's definitely heavily drawing on artistic skill set. And I was like, oh man, I don't know. I just couldn't do it. Just like sitting on a computer all day and clicking and just super tedious, like modeling. And, you know, he said to me, yeah, it is super tedious, but um, I don't kid myself on whether it's fulfilling or not. Like it's not. And what he said to me is he's like, one of the rules that I live by is to do things that, well, for actually first he explained it as um, the kind of counter example where most people who are creative types will try to figure out some way to make a living off their creativity. And this could be true right. of um, not just traditionally like artistic things, but there's a lot of really creative I guess nowadays they would be called content creators um, mm -hmm. where the definition of being creative is like way broader than, you know, what, what you think of when you, someone says the word artist is all I'm trying to say. Um, so anyways, right. he was saying that most people will try to find some way of making a living utilizing their passion and he said that that's totally the wrong way to do it that there should be two extremes where you do things that fulfill you and you don't get paid for so you do your art on the weekends on the side for fun you know you put them in an art studio maybe every once in a while someone buys one you know for five hundred dollars you've seen those art studios downtown or whatever and you're like man who buys right. these but, you know, someone buys them, I guess, every once in a while. And <clears throat> so you do that. It's fun. And it doesn't suck the joy out of it for you. Um, mm -hmm. And this was one thing that resonated with me because as a musician, I was a professional musician for a little while. And I quickly, after only a year, was like, nope, I'm not doing this. This is sucking all of the joy out of it for me. It's turning right. what I used to love into a chore where I have to like sit down and just, you know, like practice these charts because the gig is coming. And if I don't, I'm not going to get my measly, you know, hundred bucks for the night or whatever. And then yeah. play five hours on the desert air. Yeah. For, you know, 50 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, go back to my studio apartment and do it all over again. Um, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to be totally happy. I'm making the decision to be happy with music, just being a hobby for me. You know, like I don't need the like status of being a professional musician or that lifestyle or anything. I love music for what it is. I'll do it in whatever capacity I can to fit it in with the rest of my life. And that will be that. So I was coming from this background when he told me that. And, but even still, I was in the back of my mind trying to think of ways that maybe I could make it work, like being a music therapist, perhaps, or, you know, mm -hmm. peripheral things. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he was like, look, I do the computer CAD modeling stuff and it's super boring. It's super tedious, but. I make way more money than I would by painting. You know, I'd have to sell a lot of paintings to um, 
make as much money as I do on the computer. And I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I started developing this, I, I guess, just this idea of like, how could you take that idea to its maximum extent? And that would involve doing things that just make you a ton of money in the shortest amount of time possible to leave you more time to do other things. And I never read the book, I think. So one of the biggest podcasts out there, Tim Ferriss, have you heard of him? Yeah. Yeah. He has that book, the four hour work week. And I think that that book, I haven't read that book, but I'm guessing that that book is basically what I'm saying. Like, I should probably read it so that I can just be like, oh, Tim Ferriss wrote this book. Like, go read that. You know, and I don't have to explain. It. But I, yeah, I like your approach better. I, I think a lot of Tim Ferriss's um, things in that book were more focused on outsourcing your crap to someone else, you know, sort of like getting on Fiverr and then uh, getting one of these virtual assistants, like a lot of the podcasters do, a lot of the, uh, you know, whatever, you know, the content creators, a lot of them do that. Oh, yeah. And then they have somebody else edit their podcast. They have somebody else do all their crappy work and stuff like that. That was the main focus that I got out of that book. Oh, okay. That was what stood out in your article was the fact that you get away from the idea that, sure, I'm making a lot of money, but I'm still going to have this mindset like I'm working 40 hours a week, right? And you were different than that in saying, what do I need to fulfill this goal, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to work one hour at $100 an hour. And one thing that stood out was charge more than what you would pay for it or charge a lot and you'll do half the work. You may lose some clients, but you'll you'll do... Uh, you'll do half the work and then you'll have time for those other things, those enriching activities like music. Yeah. And that, so that's one thing that this dentist friend of mine inspired kind of influenced that belief where, uh, I had one of my teeth like chipped and yeah, Mm. I needed to get it fixed. So one of my buddies is a dentist and I went to him and it, it was not a big chip. It was just like the corner of my teeth. I had one of my teeth has like a sharp point on it. And from constantly biting yeah. down on the other tooth, it eventually just kind of like created a crack and broke the very edge of the tooth off. Like it wasn't a big deal. And I was almost considering not fixing it, but it was pretty sharp on my tongue. So I basically just wanted sure. him to like grind it down. Not a big deal. So I go to him. He's a friend, you know, whatever. And it was 700 bucks to do this. And yep. <laughs> so I gave him the money and I was just like, man, I won't say his name, but I was just like, man, brother, like, what is the deal with that? <laughs> like, bet- just between me and you, like, I'm happy to pay it or whatever, but come on. He's like, oh yeah, <clears throat> no, I totally get it. Like, I don't expect, I'm actually surprised that you came to me. Like none of my friends or anything come to me because most people know that I'm just way too expensive. Like I'm the most expensive mm-hmm. dentist in town by far. I was like, yeah, well, tell me about it. And <clears throat> it got me thinking for the same thing, you know, the same work, the same treatment, the same, whatever this guy got 
got away with charging just way more than the next guy. And it's like, well, how did he get away with that? Some people, for whatever reason, are willing to pay it. You, like, you just have to accept that fact at, at some, no matter how little it makes sense to me or you or anyone else who, you know, because a lot of people um, who are listeners to this are probably more on the like thrifty side, like trying to figure out how to live with less money, be more efficient, all sure. that stuff, I would assume. Um, so it's hard for us to wrap our mind around that other people just... <laughs> Like they'll spend their money on, on the randomest stuff that we can't even right. like imagine how ridiculous it is. So I, I was thinking like, okay, um, so I'm just going to start raising my prices until people stop hiring me. And like <laughs> every week I would raise my prices by like another $10 an hour. And That's people awesome. just like kept hiring me. They didn't care because mm-hmm. so with the handyman thing, pretty much um, I never did any advertising or anything um, in my area. There's a lot of people moving in a lot of like, you know, rich Californian type people who are moving into a historically not super economically prosperous area. So there's right. not like a lot of really nice houses. There's actually very few, pretty much just like, you know, on the waterfront there are. And then beyond that, um, there's not a whole lot going on. You know, a lot of the houses around here are just a little beat down or whatever. The The houses in the area just like aren't that super nice. So anyways, there, there's a huge mm-hmm. demand for them to get fixed up. And the the second one person you know, realized that I do this, they just like start telling people and it was all word of mouth. And when someone new would call me, they'd be like, Oh, Hey, are you Jules? Like, do you fix houses and stuff? I'd be like, yep. You know, it's 65 bucks an hour. Like, just tell me when you need me and what, you know, if you have any idea on it. And then, you know, the next week I'd be like, it's 70 bucks. And I just kept working it up and up and up and it never stopped. And then eventually people did start to drop off after a certain point at $75 an hour. That's when people were like, they're like, man, when did you raise your prices? You know, like repeat customers who I'd had when I started at $35 an hour way back when. And, um, they're like, man, that's ridiculous. Now, uh, I'm not paying that. And I'm like, okay, well, other people are. So, See ya. Sure. I'll, I go to like barter circles a lot with my blacksmithing stuff. And I go uh-huh. on the blanket. And I'm like, here's what I got. But, you know, if you want something in specific, here's my number. Call me up and we'll work something out. And really the stuff. So you, so you take your stuff over to a, a barter blanket and then use that to drive business? Yeah. The, the barter blanket is... Um, I bring really small items that are uh, light because a lot of the time you're like uh-huh. hiking to these things, you know, at like rainbow gatherings or permaculture convergences or whatever. You've just got like whatever's in your backpack. And yeah, sure. Um, I just bring like a sample of stuff that is small and light 
to give like a representation and and sometimes people do like want to trade for that stuff which is great um but really what i'm looking for the bartering is fun that's that's like the fun part mm-hmm. but every once in a while you'll you'll come across the person who's like okay like this is the barter thing or whatever we're not allowed to exchange money but look like i want this let's work this out outside of it and you know i'll pay you to make me this and those are the people who you like want as a customer because they want something specific they know what they want and they want you to do it they they like sought you out you're not like looking for them like you're just hanging out and they're coming to you and they're probably willing to pay I had this experience myself when I went to the farmer's market a couple of weeks ago, there was a uh, potter there and he had some really cool, you know, standard stuff, cups, bowls, plates, right. Um, standard stuff. And I was like, Hey, do you have a fermentation crock? I think that'd be super cool to have like a handmade fermentation crock with the like colorful glaze. Cause you know how most fermentation crocks are just that beige color. Yeah. And it's just kind of boring, like having a really cool, beautiful one that you could leave on your counter for, you know, putting your sauerkraut in and stuff. Yeah. I think that'd be cool. And I was like, hey, I'd be willing to pay you 300 bucks to make me one of these. And <clears throat> that sounds like a ridiculous amount for a fermentation crock. But when you think about it, it's, it's really not like that bad for a handmade one, how big they are right. and just how hard that would be to make. And he said, he said back to me, he's like, oh, like it's not gonna it, it wouldn't cost that much like it would probably be more like 150 dollars <laughs> and i was just like oh sweet you know like that's what i said to him but in my mind i was just like dude you fool like you i just turned up- down 300 dollars. <laughs> yeah like like i came up to you and i was like i will give you 300 dollars, and then you you like charged me less like why why would you ever do that so given that there's that reality of people who do that. And that's the problem. That's the problem is that people get wrapped around the axle on what they would pay, or they get wrapped around the axle about, Oh, this is too much. This isn't fair. This isn't fair to this person. And then they're cutting themselves short. Yeah, totally. But the thing that they don't realize is that like, if everyone did it, then it would be okay. There, it, it, it wouldn't even be like a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I, I can kind of see where the like negative connotations come from of just like, Oh, I'm ripping this person off. Right. This is unfair, but I don't know where that sentiment comes from. Cause I've felt that too. And I've wanted to undercharge in the past, but um, one day, I, I guess I just realized, I was like, you know what? I don't even care. Like, I remember back in the day I saw there was this app in the app store. It was a completely useless app. It was just, you opened it and it was like a red Ruby or something like that. Right. And the developers made it as a joke. It was, it was like $8,000 for the app. They, they just wanted to have the most expensive app in the app store. (laughs) So they, they put in the like highest possible price that they could or something. And it was like $8,000 and the app did literally nothing, but several people bought it. Really? And, and it's, 
yeah and it's just like what is the deal why why would anyone do that but you know people will and the it's it's just like there's some slope on the line of the proportion of people of a price of something Mm -hmm. um that like as the price goes up the proportion of people who will buy it goes down but it's like a linear line so you could be anywhere on that line and be making the same amount of money yeah so that's the that's the demand curve so so many people get stuck on oh wait i'm starting to lose business and then they stop but if you go for the premium customer then they're still on that curve somewhere you're just not intersecting with 90 percent of the people but you've whittled it down to 25% of the people who are willing to pay that higher cost. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the, the system that, that I ultimately settled on was kind of, so like if the thesis was um, trying to find a way to like make a living off your passion, the antithesis is like, no, there should be like a total, um, a total like barrier between them. You should just have the, what fulfills you for free. And then what you don't like for money, the synthesis would kind of be what I think I've stumbled upon here of the like multi-side hustle, intermittent high value dollar per hour system. Like anything that you can think of, that you are capable of doing you just throw it out there that you do it for a lot of money that's that's like all you have to do you might do it once a year and it doesn't matter because you've got a ton of other things that you're doing that you're doing a couple times a year you know on a scale where you've got your like reliable good old standbys like for me handyman would be by far the like most uh, utilized of these, but you've got a bunch of them so that, you know, you've got the blacksmithing thing, you score a couple films a year, you write some music, you perform a couple times a year, you train a couple dogs every year, you make a couple pieces of furniture every year, you hammer out a couple knives for people every year, you know, you make one chandelier, a year you know and and all of these little things it it's like a surefire way to never get burned out because for me i get burned out like super easily i've never had a like job proper like a real job for more than two years i've always gotten just like too bored and wanted to move on and do something else so for people who get bored easily this is a great thing because you're never doing the same thing. You know, one week you're in the shop building furniture, the next week you're over on someone's property erecting a greenhouse for them. It's like, it couldn't be more different of skill sets that you're utilizing. Um, But it's just always fresh. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's excellent. And avoiding burnout is, is, is huge right there. And then also getting away from that. Okay. So I'm going to work 40 hours a week. So if I charge $35 an hour, then I can keep busy for 40 hours a week. 
you've taken it to the next step and say, if I charge $75 or an hour, I can work 20 hours a week or half time. Mm-hmm. Right. And it gets away from this. I got to fill up my time with this job type thing. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you've talked about this before on your podcast, just how like people's jobs are in our culture are so much part of their identity. And oh, yeah. um, I guess just like the, the other thing is about burnout is it feels really good to at the end of the day to like walk away and have like a thousand bucks in cash in your hand, you know, yeah. just like getting a paycheck, like direct deposited into your bank account, you know, a couple thousand bucks, whatever, like, that's cool. That's nice. But there's a certain dopamine burst that you get from just having like a fat stack of cash that sure. in your mind, you didn't really like work that hard for, you know, like mm-hmm. the biggest one for me is when I do tractor work because I charge 150 bucks an hour for this. And, you know, people, mostly neighbors, um, just like hit me up. And there's this one guy who lives down the street who he's like a very large patron of mine. He wants, he wants me to dig an entire pond. That's like almost, um, like a quarter of an acre of a pond on his property. And I'm like, yeah, man, it's 150 an hour. He's like, yup. I know it's going to be expensive, but you know, like I want you to do it because I met this guy. He was, I saw him working on his house and I stopped by just to say, hi, I was like, Hey, you know, new neighbor, what's up? Just introduce myself. Um, and I kind of, he was working on his house. So I was like, Oh yeah, you know, I do this for a living. If you ever need any help, just let me know. I'll come over and, you know, help you for free just cause you're a neighbor and I always give neighbors like a free day just to kind of like read them out and um, see if mainly if I want to like associate with them, because when you work for someone Mm -hmm. or with someone, it's really easy to tell quickly um, if you want to deal with them anymore. Right. And so, yeah, so I worked for this guy and he liked me and he just called me the other day. He, He lives out of town, but he's coming back for a month to work on his place. And he's like, yeah, get ready, man. I'm going to line stuff up for you. And, you know, this guy, like, once again, like he owns a construction company down in Colorado. He's very wealthy. Right. He has this like super crazy vision of this like pond with like multi levels and like with fish in it. And like, he's, he wants like a little Mm -hmm. like rowboat on it. (laughs) You know, he's got like this very specific vision that's like really quirky and if you went to like your average kind of bulldozer operator and we're like hey like i have this vision he'd be like uh what are you talking about man like <laughs> like i don't have time for that you know what i mean he'd be like he'd laugh yeah, at you he'd, he'd yeah. be like you want like what these like japanese fish that you want to go swimming with like uh yeah i'll pass on that i'd rather just like drive my bulldozer in a circle in a field and make you know livestock yeah. ponds because that's that's easy. Um, I don't want to put like islands and like leaf trees and stuff, but you know, for me, I think that'd be pretty fun. And it's like, 
you know, at the end of the day, you go dig on his um, property for, you know, 10 hours in a day. And like, you got 1500 bucks right there. And it's like, how many, so how do you keep from getting dragged into the, well, this is my friend or I know this guy well enough, or he's my neighbor. And then they start thinking that you should cut him a break or you should do it for free or we're buds or whatever else. How do you keep it from slipping into the gift economy? Yeah. So, um, I keep that. I, there's two distinct, uh, categories of people in my mind there's friends and then there's acquaintances and with friends Mm -hmm. i would never take money or give money to my friends and it's going to be exclusively gift economy but um if they if i'm going to charge them then i'm just like you know what you might be a great person we might like really enjoy hanging out whatever but like i've got enough friends right now for, you know, my Dunbar's number or whatever is like filled. I don't necessarily need right. any more friends. So I'm like, we're going to keep this here. And I usually establish it like super early on um, in the interaction. So like I mentioned, I'll give people like neighbors and stuff just a free day. I'll stop by and help them with something. And <clears throat> if they, and then I, I won't do anything. I won't initiate anything else. Um, the ball is in their court. If they then come to me and ask me to help then like right then and there, I just say, I'm like, yep, 75 bucks an hour for this, like 150 for tractor work, whatever. Um, let me know, like, if you want to get started, whatever. And then I, that's how I do it. It's just like right up front. I kind of lead with that just so that, Mm -hmm. um, Cause I think one thing that a lot of people do is like, try to be friends with everyone. You don't yeah. like having friends is great, but you don't need to be friends with everyone. Like me and this neighbor have a totally positive relationship. Like mm-hmm. it's, there's no ill will. Like I'm really glad to have him as a neighbor. It's great. He likes me. I like him, but like, we're not friends, you know, and that's totally okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I don't know, I guess those would be my two things. Just like if I had to give advice to someone is just be okay with not being friends with everyone and establish like, as the very first thing in your interaction with someone asking you to do something, what, like what you charge for it or what the arrangement's going to be. next time on Thrive in the Future podcast. Walk around the garden, we'd noticed certain plants were, were being eaten. And we, we knew at the time that we out the garden had become a sanctuary for bandicoot. And uh, they were they were non-existent in the area. And now they seem to be totally um, concentrated in on our property simply because it's uh, so protected by the fences as well as um, uh, moist over the summer. So that, well, we put it down to bandicoots. And then uh, we couldn't work it out. We couldn't work out what was eating these things. And I came home one day and there was this uh, kangaroo sleeping in the shade. Thank you for listening to the Thrive in the Future podcast. If you like what you hear, click that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast app. Also, check us out at thriveinthefuture.com and join our conversation on Twitter at Thrive in the Fute 
or join our Telegram channel. Simply go to the Thrive in the Future website. On the right sidebar, there's a link to the Telegram channel. This episode was produced by Scott Miller, copyright 2022. Thriveinthefuture.com Join us at the Homestead Journal in living out the classic homesteading ethos on the path towards a simple life that speaks to the heart of humanity. We're an online community embodying and helping our members develop an indestructible homesteading mindset. Become someone who adds walk to the talk and applies proven old world protocols in a modern context. Find us at thehomesteadjournal.net and follow us at thj.net on Twitter.